We're going to talk about holiness today. And when you heard that word come out of my mouth just now, uh, you were probably already doing a kind of free associating. Holiness. Oh, where's this going? I'm sure that happens every Sunday when I say something, I bring something up, and of course, it takes you to places that are unique to your own experience or your own formation. Lots of words, lots of concepts are loaded, and holiness is actually a pretty loaded word for me. I imagine it is for some of you knowing your backgrounds. And in fact, the concept of holiness as I understood it coming up was one of my intellectual barriers to faith before becoming a Christian at 20. I simply didn't believe that even if Jesus loved me enough to die for me, that I could live up to it. Maybe you grew up thinking that way. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you still feel that way. My early uh, exposure to faith instilled a Saving Private Ryan framework for Christianity. What do I mean by that? Remember the film when the dying Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, he tells Matt Damon's Private Ryan to earn this. Earn this. All those soldiers died trying to get the last surviving brother of three home to mom. So be a good man, Private Ryan. Earn this. And it's very similar to the kind of first century Pharisaism that the Apostle Paul learned from the school of Shimei, often called covenantal gnomism. uh, You're brought into the Abrahamic covenant by faith, but then you stay in the covenant by works of the law. That's how it worked. That's how they understood it. Similarly, Similarly for me, it was Jesus gets you in, but personal holiness keeps you in. I didn't really hear the message of grace until I was about 20 or maybe I heard it but I didn't hear it hear it it didn't penetrate kind of this barnacle layer of moralism that was keeping me from the freedom of the gospel for me it was about works but the sad irony is being holy is the expressed and embodied freedom of salvation and that's really my main point today. So if you need a nap, you can go on and take it. I just want you to have heard this. The sad irony, again, based on what I understood, is that being holy is freedom. It is the expressed and the embodied freedom of the salvation that we have in Jesus. It's not a condition for being set free. So this is part of what Peter is concerned with in the first chapter of his first letter to what we know were Gentile Christians scattered throughout modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor at the time. They were facing some significant hostility from their fellow Romans for their way of life, for this new and strange way of life. And when that kind of hostility or that kind of reaction happens for any of us, it's easy to lose sight of why we're, we're doing what we're doing of who we are. And that's Peter's concern for these embattled believers in Asia Minor. So something to think about just before we dive into um, this part of this letter. If you've been at Village for a while, you've probably heard me talk about how being off by one degree is no big deal if, say, you know, you're throwing a Frisbee 20 yards or, see, uh, you know, you're setting the plumb line for a small garden shed. But one degree is a huge deal if you're surveying 100 acres or you're sailing the Atlantic. Point being, the further and longer you go off by a little bit, the more profound the effect of the error. Does that make sense? Particularly if you understand and live your story according to that error. And I think I found myself probably off way more than one degree, but found myself 
thinking about, and even early on in my faith, and probably even sometimes now, off a little bit and thus missing out. Of course, we know that being human means, includes being wrong often. And the tricky part, and you've maybe heard me talk about this before, bring up some work that Katherine Schultz has done. The tricky part is that being wrong feels exactly like being right. It's tricky. We're probably all doing it right now in some area of our lives. And if you think you're the rare exception, then you're probably wrong about that. So balance is hard for humans. More often than not, our tendency to err, to be wrong, it amounts to an overemphasis on one thing and a corresponding underemphasis on something related to that and vice versa. This can even tend to change or qualify the definition of these things, the, the distinction between these things that we're trying to balance. You can probably think of many examples um, where balance is hard. Justice and mercy. Grace and truth. Patience and urgency. Recreation and responsibility. Forbearance and accountability. The list goes on. The balance, the tension between the two, the relationship between the two. And the point is, this can actually happen with grace and holiness too. To be clear, they aren't opposites. Grace and holiness are not opposites, but they are related. And thankfully, we have Peter, we have the other apostles to help us understand and to recalibrate the relationship between grace and holiness, between receiving this lavish, undeserved gift from God and being set apart by Him for an embodied and expressed life of obedience and blessing, a response to that gift. They belong together. The balance is important. And by the way, and I, I said it just now, but the, that's what the word holy means is fundamentally. It means set apart. You know, you could say it's like something special, something oriented in a particular way for a particular purpose above and beyond other things. So to the degree we as Christians are set apart in the world, it's not merely for our own sakes, uh, but for, it's for the, for the world itself. It's for others, it's for our neighbors, for our culture. Called to reflect, set apart to reflect the holiness of God himself into the world that he loves and is redeeming. So in the end, it's really not even about our holiness. It's about God's holiness at work in us, and that is a freedom to be fully what God's intended us to be. It's the freedom to actually participate in what God is doing and in new creation, okay? So again, the main point is this, being holy is the expressed and embodied freedom of the salvation we have by grace. And the first sub-point that I wanna make comes from the wider context of the letter. This is really, really important, it's vital. Grace is the ground for holiness. It's the precedent, it's the condition for it. Without grace, there is no holiness to hope for. Or to put it another way, the pursuit of holiness is not freedom without grace. And maybe you've experienced that. It's not the kind of freedom that it's meant to be without grace. So from the very beginning of chapter one, Peter is telling these Romans how in they really, really are. Like really in, like in, in, you are in. He uses language about them that once applied only to the Jews. He says, once you were not a people, now you are. You're born again to a living hope, to a new family. You have a new identity. And as with God's people, you're understood, mistreated. You're sojourning through human history while looking for something more lasting. 
They're the new temple being built, he says. I mean, he just gathers up the whole tradition and the whole, the whole reality of the people of God, of what God's been doing. He gathers it together. They're the new temple being built up together for God's presence. They are a chosen race. They're a royal priesthood. They're a holy nation belonging to God. And all of this, he says, right there in the third sentence of this letter, is according to God's mercy which he will then layer with God's love and then God's grace. And he builds this foundation of the whole letter on the lavish grace of God to give them the gift of belonging through Jesus. It is a masterwork of the balance and the tension between the gift of grace and the call to holiness. If you read it all, if you take it in. So, this is what he offers, but living it is much harder than knowing it at least knowing it in a certain way. He returns repeatedly to the goal of helping them make sense of their suffering. Because it's, it's that much harder to follow this way if it's being persecuted, if it's just really hard. He's helping them make sense of their suffering, of how hard it is to resist, actually, what, the futility of the culture around them, to face societal penalties for believing and acting as though the gospel is true. I remember a friend of mine who worked for Apple one time saying, you absolutely do not tell anyone at Apple that you're a Christian. It's just interesting. I mean, most of us don't face that in the workplace, but he said, forget about it. And so imagine this on a whole different level, when all of society... By this point, at the time of this writing, all of society is pitted against this way of life. So, again, he's, they're facing this penalty for believing and acting as though the gospel is true. And in doing so, what Paul is, or Peter is doing, he's continually pointing them back to Jesus and to Jesus' suffering to help them understand their union with Christ in this. For all the apostles, the presence of suffering never meant the absence of God. It meant and it means a unique union with Jesus. That for Peter, it even, you know, this, this suffering even purifies faith like gold through fire. And I don't have time to unpack that more, but one does not, you know, it doesn't, the, the presence of suffering does not exclude the love and the freedom of God and the favor of God. It's hard for us in the modern mind to, to reconcile those. In that day, even beyond Christianity, that was not as hard. Which brings us to our verses for today. Before the explicit call to be holy, in verse 15, we get this imperative in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter mentions the mind two times here, the dianoia in Greek, which is essentially what we mean by mind, your understanding. And here, you know, he includes it in a word picture. Preparing for your minds for action translates literally as girding up the loins of your mind to move. And unless you're an old soul who uses words like gird and loin, you would say this. You'd say, tuck in everything that's loose and flowing to avoid being encumbered. It catching on something. It tripping you up. Tuck it in. You backpackers, do you know if you've gone a long distance how important it is to have everything lashed down tightly so that it doesn't snag or fall off or create an awkward balance while you're trying to navigate technical terrain, especially over a long distance. Do this for your mind, Peter is saying. Do it for your mind. 
And he adds this other point about the mind or the, the dianoia. He says, be sober-minded. We might say, be vigilant. We might say, don't get distracted. And instead of getting distracted, instead of, you know, um, not being sober-minded, he's saying engage your mind toward hope in, particular in Jesus' coming kingdom, on the grace that awaits, even though it's hard now. Even though it's hard now. Be sober-minded. Don't let all of these things distract you from a bigger and better reality. So then in verse 14, Reminding them of their belonging as children, again, Peter's, he, he addresses this strong tug of their former ignorance. That word ignorance is agnoia, a word that means having no sense of what's really going on. What's really going on. In other words, the old ways will subject your dianoia to agnoia. Your mind will be encumbered by a former ignorance. So gird up, be vigilant, move forward, not backward is what he's saying here. And to be clear, soberly preparing your mind for action, it isn't a matter. Let's talk about knowledge for a minute, okay? This isn't a matter of simply getting our doctrine neat and tight and circling our theological wagon so that we can move forward with absolute certainty. That's not what he's after. It's far deeper and wider than that. Christian knowing and thinking, this is so important, if we're going to find ourselves really anchored in the tradition and not just in 20th and 21st century Protestantism, um, this knowing and thinking assumes the kind of knowledge that the philosopher Michael Polanyi, you may be familiar with, he calls tacit knowledge. It's deeper than just the list and everything that you know and understand. It's a deeper understanding that's formed by more than an overt information or list. This knowledge actually depends on our embodiment with and our belonging to and our participation in a community and even with a tradition. And everyone operates with this kind of tacit knowledge. There is something, a, a bed of believing, a bed of understanding and operating under us that we're not fully aware of that it's at work. Everyone operates with tacit knowledge. It's who we are because of where we are and with whom we are, whether it's completely apparent to us or not. And so then given Peter's emphasis, I think it's important for us to see this, given his emphasis on belonging and on new family, he's actually calling them together in this girding up and this moving forward. It's, he's calling the, the collective, the tacit reality, this knowledge of sh that they share together, calling them together in it to move forward. It's far more than learning what's right and wrong and acting accordingly. It's about learning um, or leaning into what your connection and belonging are telling you. And I would suggest to you that even the idea of your own personal life and holiness and faith and all of that, as much as hopefully it's been enriched by being a part of village, there is more going on than you realize by coming and hearing the word and receiving the bread and the wine. Which leads us to verses 15 through 21. Here's a fitting summary of these verses, I think, and it's a second subpoint. The call to holiness is relational, not transactional. Now again, some of you might be saying, well, duh, that's not duh to many of us, and maybe to many of you. It's the call to holiness is relational, not transactional. That's what uh, fundamentally makes it beautiful and freeing. 
Verse 15 says this, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, if that's all Peter offered in this call to holiness, it might sound comparative. What, well, God is holy, what, what about you? It might sound moralistic, like, you know, that's, it's just an end in itself, it's got to happen. And also, because of those things, it might sound impossible. It sounded impossible to me as a young person and the parts of the gospel that I had heard. But we read on, right? Verse 17 says this, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I don't want you to miss this turn of words right here. He who called you is holy, but you call on him as father. There is the relational reality. In short, this God for whom every human action and intention, whether it's good or bad, is crystal clear. He loves you as a father and he wants you free, fully human, ransoming you from slavery, a slavery to inherited, polluted, tacit knowledge the ways that entrap us in futility. A freedom from bad belonging and all that it produces. And so in verses 20 and 21, then he reminds them and us that the preeminent, the eternal Jesus from the, before the foundation of the world is manifested right here, right there with them, right here with us, and right you know, in our temporal lives and whatever's going on. His point is that our origin goes all the way back to Jesus, not to our forefathers, not to our families even, our nations or our cultures. Who we are and what we know is rooted in something much greater, mysteriously, but profoundly. So to be holy is to live out that kind of radical relational renewal of this origin story that we have in God, which is why you know, it's baptism. That's where he goes with this. It's, 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 it's why we understand our lives as new creation and new birth. It's because it's a new story. And that relationship upon which that story is grounded is our what for. So then in verse 22, the purpose of holiness is plain. Obedience to the truth of God is the expression of a sincere, others-focused love. It's not an adherence to rules rooted in self-focus. Because let's be honest, a rulesy kind of thing, a holiness not rooted in grace generally becomes about our own righteousness, our own performance. Then it becomes comparative and judgmental and all these other things. It's self-focused, especially if you're good at it. More could be said. Verse 23 says that this obedience springs up from our new birth, the point I was just making. It's a new conception even from imperishable seed. We are born again from love and for love through the living and abiding word of God. What does that mean? The living and abiding word of God. It's nothing short of the divine fusion that we see ultimately, that, that has been given to us ultimately. The fusion of the living and present Jesus himself, the Logos the, the embodied truth, the Logos of John's gospel, and this knowledge about him that's expressed and embraced in words. 
they are in some sense one and the same. Living and abiding word. At the center of reality. A message that brings freedom, that empowers transformation, that inspires our response. So on that note, let me just come back to this idea, this tacit knowledge as I wrap this up. I think you could argue, friends, that the tacit knowledge, the way we operate and think without even thinking, it comes from healthy belonging, the kind of deeper understanding that actually anchors and orients us in the world. That is what is increasingly in short supply in the late modern West. Why? Because expressive individualism, it is the tacit reality of our age. It's isolating. It has gone to seed and it's been compounded by the pseudo-connected, performative, transactional, non-space of social media. This is not a message about social media, but it includes it. Because the truth is it has fundamentally changed the way we think of belonging and orienting ourselves to reality in the world. It's exacerbated by this vapid identity narrative of our culture that's constantly being redoubled as a crisis of identity, an obsession with self in the end. And this cultural tacit knowledge, the sad part, and you've seen it, many of you have seen it, it cannot deliver on real belonging or purpose. And so it's become the perfect cell to incarcerate and ruin the soul. And I believe that this is the mental and emotional crisis in which we find ourselves. It's the opposite, opposite of the belonging that we have and the origin that we have in God and with one another. The direct opposite. So then what's the answer? Look at verses 23 to 25, and I'll read 23 again. You have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And and this is from Isaiah 40. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. It's the origin story of real flourishing in life, of the possibility for living in freedom, which is what holiness is. In the temporality of flesh and flowers, the vulnerability of human existence, God has connected us to a better thing, to an eternal story, to Jesus, and by Him, we're connected to one another because fundamentally what we need is belonging. The good news is that we belong, and it begins and ends in God. For every futile narrative that's born of our earthly fathers or of, born of overt godlessness or of well-meaning notions that are just off by one degree and have gone way too long in the wrong direction, there is actually, he's saying, a truth about us that remains, even when we aren't tacitly aware of it. And it's found in one message, and it calls for one response. To live as though It's true. Together. That's why we're here. So with holiness as our aim, even our shortfalls are the means by which God gives himself to us and orients us to the story. Being able to confess together is freedom. It's freedom. When we confess and seek mercy together and apart, it's easy to feel like we're transacting with God, but we are not. We're communing with our Father in our failure. And I want some of you need to hear me that you can commune with God in your failure. That's what confession is. 
He welcomes us in our vulnerability, in our grassiness, in our fading flowerness. He welcomes us in our need, and it's all possible because we already belong. So in closing, just listen to this part of the Emmaus Road story again. Relates. I hope you can already feel how it relates. When Jesus was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight, and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Right there, the story. Jesus is telling the sacrament that he's sharing with them. The word and the food of rescue, the new Passover, it's all coming into view. Their recognition and their assurance of the risen Lord, this fire for holiness even, from holiness within, was lit by hearing the story. It was lit by communing with Jesus around the table together. And what we're doing is nothing short of that. The possibility for our freedom, which looks like holiness, comes because of the freedom we have in this eternal living and abiding word and in that Jesus will fulfill his promise to be with us. When the bread is broken and the wine is poured and shared. So today, together, our expectation is that our understanding, everything we're meant to know and can know in this life, our faith, our knowledge, our minds are being uniquely formed by these holy practices. I'm not asking you to put your faith in the practices. I am asking you to put your faith in the presence of the one who instituted them and who gave us his word and who is his word. That's what we're doing. And my role primarily to, always is to invite you back to the story. And that's what these do with me, with us together.